You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to a special episode of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, we're doing a special episode today because today is the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings when the Allies attacked France and finally invaded Fortress Europe. It's a big anniversary. It is indeed a very big anniversary, 75 years, something worth celebrating, so we thought we'd dive back into the history books and do a podcast about it since, well, this is a podcast. I suppose it makes the question that you traditionally ask a little bit anticlimactic. It's a little bit anticlimactic, but I will ask the question since it is in the podcast name. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's June 6th, 1944, and along the length and breadth of the coast of England, men are slowly filing onto ships, preparing for the great landing to which many of them have dedicated the past four years of their lives. Paint a picture for us, David. What's it like on this early morning, June 6th? Well, to start with, the weather is miserable. The landings were initially planned for June 5th and have been delayed by a day because of the storm that had grown up in the channel. But even on June 6th, as this morning's dawning, the weather is bad. Some of the troops have already loaded into their ships on June 5th before the landing was canceled. They're miserable and seasick already. Other troops who are still waiting on shore are still clearly able to see that the channel is choppy and ugly. And in the early part of the morning, even as the preparations go ahead, General Eisenhower still has to make up his mind and make the decision whether the actual invasion can go ahead with the weather conditions prevailing. So Eisenhower's in charge here, David. The decision comes down to him. The decision is on his shoulders. He gives the go or no-go order, and nobody else is going to either countermand him or command him. And Eisenhower himself is nervous. He's actually got in his coat pocket a speech which he has written for the contingency of if the invasion is a total failure, and he has to announce that to the press. So he's prepared for the absolute worst, but he makes a decision to go ahead on June 6th, as we know, because it was 75 years ago today. He makes the decision. He makes the call. Nerve-wracking moment, of course. But then, once Eisenhower's done with his nerve-wracking moment, it's time for everybody else in the absolutely massive invasion force to start having a few nerves of their own. Because now, this force, five divisions on the boats and two divisions 
dropping from the air, need to cross the channel, protected by the largest ever armada of an amphibious invasion fleet. And that means that everybody, everybody is terrified of something going wrong on the water. Why is that what they're scared of, David? Why is the water such a challenge here? The issue with the D-Day landings is that they're not just a standard river crossing like the army is used to dealing with. The channel is substantially wider than any ordinary river. It's tidal. It's got the whole complications of tides and currents that you get in the ocean that are not like the currents that you get on a river, which all run one way. So it's very complex to do. It's hard to do this kind of an amphibious assault. It's hard for anybody. But there's additional problems here. The two big ones are that the troops themselves are not used to this kind of work. It's too big of an assault to be made just by specialist troops like the U.S. Marines or the British commandos who do amphibious operations all the time, who are specialists at that kind of work. They have to land ordinary infantry divisions who get special training, but who don't have the same kind of experience that specialists would have. And the other issue, of course, is just the sheer scale. It's massive. There's so many guys packed onto so many ships. It's ridiculous. And they know that that's a liability. Only a few months earlier in August, they'd been conducting Exercise Tiger, one of the exercises to train troops to conduct this kind of an amphibious assault, and more specifically to train for this exact amphibious assault. And tragically, German torpedo boats had managed to break into the uh, exercises area of operations, and over 700 American soldiers were killed on that one very small exercise. And that was just a training exercise to practice. It wasn't even the actual invasion. Exactly. So everybody who is involved with the invasion knows the first critical thing, but certainly not the last critical thing, is to simply get all of these troops onto boats in England, across the channel, and off of those boats onto a French beach without getting all of them killed. You mentioned Exercise Tiger, David. What contingencies, what plans have the Allies gone through to try and make this a success? The Allies have been planning this for three years. 1941, only months after the British Army had finally been forced out of France during the Battle of France, the first planning team was put together in the British general staff and started coming up with preliminary plans for how they were going to do an invasion of France amphibiously from England. The plans have changed drastically since that time, of course, but they have 
all kinds of contingencies considered and all kinds of special plans, especially to deceive the Germans as to the exact location of where the landings will be, because they know that if they can do that, most German countermeasures won't be able to operate across the entire coast of France. So if they're confused as to where the landing is going to happen before it happens, they won't be able to counteract it. That makes sense. Do they manage to deceive the Germans, David? So the deception efforts that go on before Operation Overlord, before D-Day, are immense. They range from truly outrageous plans aimed at suggesting that the Allies are going to, in this year of 1944, focus on invading Norway or Italy or other very far-fetched targets that are a significant distance away from France and therefore from the real action. But the main effort is driven at convincing the German army that the Allies are going to cross from Dover to the Pas de Calais, which is the shortest distance of water of the entire English Channel. And as we've already discussed, everybody on both sides knows that the Allies don't want to have their troops on the water for any longer than necessary. Right. So why aren't they actually invading there, David, where the water channel is the smallest, where it's the easiest to cross? So the two problems are, first off, that it would be very obvious, and they don't want to be obvious. And the second problem is that as with the famous cliffs of Dover, the Pas-de-Calais tends to be a somewhat hillier area than Normandy, which is where they're actually landing farther south. And heights are good for defenders. And therefore, on the attack, the Allies want to avoid them. So why do they pick Normandy? Normandy is got a few things to recommend it. The first one is that it's still close enough to the English shoreline that they can cover it with land-based aircraft, fighter cover over extended periods of time. That's very important because the one countermeasure which the Germans can put in place, which can strike the entire coastline, no matter how deceived they were before the day, is the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. But of course, it can't beat the Allies' land-based air cover in England, because if it could, it would have done that already. Okay, that makes sense. The second reason is a little bit more counterintuitive. The reason why they're attacking this section of the Normandy coast is because they desperately need ports, and there are no ports on this section of the coast. Yeah, that doesn't make as much sense as the first reason. See, the thing is that Fortress Europe, as Adolf Hitler called his efforts to create a all-around defense of his conquered territories, is mostly just an expression. Nobody can build defenses and man them across such a vast distance 
So most places, there's no real defenses at all. But the German general staff knows that the Allies need to conquer a port quickly if they want to sustain an invasion. And therefore, every port is covered by very intensive fortifications and obstacles to defend it. The Allies have already tested this in the Dieppe raid to see what kind of defenses were on a port, the port of Dieppe, and as you know, that was a disaster. They lost a lot of troops because they were trying to break into a very heavily fortified area. So the plan is to avoid that, to land somewhere where there are no ports. But that leaves them with a problem. They need ports. They need ports. And their solution to that problem is ambitious. They decide to prefabricate everything you need to build a port in Britain and tow it across the channel on the day of the invasion and then drop that into place in an area of Normandy which has never had a port before and create a two two new instant ports on that shoreline. So they're going to bring the ports with them. That's the plan, and that's why they need an area that is both suitable in terms of harbors to build a port, but also does not have any operating ports on it. So David, how does it go? We get all of these soldiers, so many, the largest invasion force ever, onto boats, and they head across the English Channel. How does it unfold? Well, that varies depending on which of the five divisions that land from the sea you're talking about. Actually, before we talk about that, I should just mention two airborne divisions, one British and one American, will drop onto the Normandy area on June 6th. Both of them suffer terrible casualties and are badly scattered in their landings, but both of them also seize vital objectives deep behind the German lines in a classic example of an airborne operation. But of course, for the airborne troops, everything relies on the seaborne landing happening quickly and following up and reaching them before heavier armed German divisions can arrive. So we should focus on the seaborne divisions. Right, so the paratroopers successfully managed to take German positions, but they need those reinforcements from the sea because they're cut off. They've jumped out of planes. So how does it go for the armies coming across the channel? Well, as I've said, that varies by division. Each division gets its own beach as a landing ground. So from south to north, two American divisions land at Utah and Omaha beaches, as they're codenamed. Two British divisions land at Sword and Gold Beach, and sandwiched in between the two British divisions, there's one Canadian division at Juneau Beach. Okay, so Utah's the farthest south, and Gold is the farthest north? Exactly. With Omaha, Sword, and Juneau in between. That's right. All right. 
So that gives us our location, David. And you mentioned that these beaches, it goes differently for each of these groups. Exactly. So Utah, the farthest south, goes very well. The American landing hits the German troops. The German troops are taken by surprise. There's not very many of them. The terrain is good. By the end of the day, the American troops are well across the beach, dug in, highly successful. Omaha, just a little bit to the north, is a completely different story. When they first land there, it's a disaster. The German troops are just a little bit more prepared, but there's more of them. And Omaha Beach is the riskiest of the beaches that the Allies have chosen to land at. There's some cliffs that overlook it, that were always known to be a significant danger to the landing. But the commanders, the generals, decided to take the risk just to get Utah Beach that extra distance filled, that gap filled. And at the start of the day, on June 6th, Omaha seems to be going so badly that some of the commanders on the boats watching are asking that the entire landing of this division be scrapped and just moved south to Utah on the grounds that this is a disaster. So they want to give up on Omaha. They want to give up on Omaha. Why don't they, David? Frankly, because it's very hard to countermand the previously organized orders that are already going on in this situation. There's just too many troops already on boats, already headed for the beach to call things off now because they'll never be able to get away unless they can get through the German defenses. So they're forced to stick with it. Do they manage to turn it around, David? In the end, yes. Omaha Beach will have the worst casualties of any of the beach at landings at Normandy during Operation Overlord. But nonetheless, they managed to punch far enough into the German positions that they can hold on through the night and therefore are able to be reinforced the next day and the invasion continues as planned. All right, so as we move north, the next beach, David, is Sword? The next beach is Sword Beach, the first of the British beaches, On both of the British beaches, actually, sword and gold, things go fairly similarly. The British put more importance onto using technologies like modified tanks, floating tanks, uh, but also minesweeping tanks, a wide variety of these unusual armored vehicles. And they use them to very good effect on D-Day, destroying the initial German positions. The Germans are taken by surprise. And on both beaches, they get fairly good, rapid penetration early in the day and then meet with stiffening resistance from the Germans farther back. But ultimately, that doesn't matter because once they've secured the beachhead, there's more reinforcements coming. Right. As soon as they control the landing spots, they can just bring in as many soldiers as they need to help them from the sea. Exactly. So that leaves us with the Canadian beach, David, Juneau. So Juneau Beach 
has difficulty. Their problem is that because of the shape of the coastline, they need to move in at a slightly higher tide than the rest of the beaches to get their landing craft in far enough to land their troops. But that means that they need to land a full half hour behind all of the other beaches. So for the troops going in, of course, this massive invasion is preceded by completely ridiculous bombardments at every beach, which means that half an hour before the first Canadian troops get off their boat, the German defenders at Juno Beach are aware that there's an assault going on near them. On the plus side, that gives the Canadian forces an extra half hour to bombard Juno Beach before anyone lands, and they're certainly determined to take advantage of it using every form of attack available to them, ranging from the guns of battleships, rockets hastily mounted onto landing craft, all the way up to the Lancaster bombers of Bomber Command. So the plan is to use that extra half hour to try and destroy as much of the German fortifications and the German forces before they actually land, even though the Germans are going to have a sense that they're coming today. Exactly. They do their best, of course, and the firepower is amazing, the amount that is fired on Juno Beach. But ultimately, no level of firepower available in 1944 could completely destroy the kind of heavy reinforced concrete defenses that the Germans are sheltering in. And it's a job for the infantry and the tanks accompanying them to fight their way over the seawall and through the enemy defenses, which some of them are still manned even after such a terrific bombardment. But things go well. And indeed, it's on Juno Beach the Canadian troops who landed that are actually end up being the farthest inland of all of the Allied units on midnight, June 6th, 1944. Which is surprising because they landed a half hour after everyone else. Exactly. So David, this is the largest invasion ever up to this point. Give us the summary of the day. Give us the final accounting. Ultimately, D-Day is a disaster for the Germans. The Allies have managed to land seven divisions in France on the first day, and most of them overall are intact and ready to fight immediately afterwards. Even worse, the Allies have managed to land all kinds of special units, commandos, tanks, airborne units, additional artillery of all stripes to make sure that this beachhead will not be able to be quickly destroyed by any kind of swift German counterattack. And the Germans themselves, the Allied deception that had been going on before the battle started, was so ingrained by this point that they remained unwilling to call forces away from the Pas-de-Calais 
because they were still afraid that somehow this massive invasion might be a feint, that there might be another Allied invasion coming later at the Pas de Calais. So even if they had somehow been able to crack the Allied defenses with sufficient troops, which is by no means certain because the defenses the Allies had managed to create in a single day were incredibly impressive, they still weren't willing to call out all of their troops to try. And the Allies now have the two Mulberry Harbors, the two artificial harbors that they have just created on the Normandy coast where the Germans did not anticipate them. So where the Germans were hoping to prevent the Allies from being able to seize even one port, they've just found out that the Allies were capable of making two. How big of a surprise is all of this, David? You mentioned at the beginning that Eisenhower wasn't even sure this was going to work. He had his speech prepared for if they failed. How big of a success is this relative to what could have happened and how big of an undertaking this was? So the thing is that everybody anticipated that the Allies would try somewhere at some point. That the Western Allies, if they wanted to bring their armies into the fight against Germany, and everyone knew they did, essentially had to launch an amphibious invasion of France. So in some ways, this was very much anticipated. But on the other hand, quite frankly, the fears that this would be a disaster by well-informed military professionals were very common and not entirely without foundation. Amphibious operations are extremely difficult to do, and the forces that the Allies had immediately available to conduct one in England in 1944, even with all of the training that they had tried to give them, were not specialists, were not the perfect guys for the job. In point of fact, the Allies had a team whose job was to anticipate how many wounded men would have to be evacuated off the beaches and how many dead men would have to be buried because they needed to know these things to have the support services ready. And they drastically overestimated even their best case scenario for Overlord ended up being an overestimate compared to the actual numbers of dead and wounded on the day. It truly is an amazing story, David. A huge operation and really the turning point, uh, the point when things started to come to an end for the German war machine. Thanks for telling us the story. I'm always happy to memorialize a few of these of these stories. All right, David. We hope everyone will give us a follow on social media at When Art Thou. We'll keep you up to date if we're doing more special episodes. And of course, we'll keep you up to date on all of our episodes, which you can get on your favorite podcasting app or at obrother.ca. David, we like to end with a quiz or something fun on these podcasts. So I do have a D-Day quiz for you. You want to give it a try? Let's take a risk. I hope everyone's been paying attention to the story you're telling because when I come up with these questions, I don't know what you're going to talk about. And you did cover a few of these, so it's kind of a little pop quiz on what you just heard here on the podcast. Starting with our first question, 
What day was the invasion planned for before being moved because of inclement weather? The invasion was initially planned to take place one day sooner on June 5th, 1944. You got it, and you did mention that one. And the second one you mentioned as well, but I swear not all these questions were covered in the podcast. (laughs) The second one you said, uh, which invasion beach had the highest number of casualties of any of the beaches landed on D-Day? If you've just gained access to a time machine and joined the American army about to invade on D-Day, go for Utah Beach rather than Omaha Beach. That's a professional tip from me. You're correct. Omaha Beach had the highest number of casualties. All right, David, this one's a bit more challenging of a question. The question is, what was the challenge, the password, and the response for U.S. paratroopers on D-Day? U.S. paratroopers on D-Day. Yeah, so this is the three-word code they would use to identify each other after they had landed. I'm afraid I simply have no idea. It was Flash Thunder Welcome. So, uh... For anyone, any of the time travelers you mentioned earlier, the three words you're going to want to remember, flash, thunder, welcome. Speaking of paratroopers, David, 24,000 paratroopers landed on D-Day, but to the Germans, it appeared there were even more as the Allies dropped dummy paratroopers to confuse them. What were these fake paratroopers called? Oh, I should know this, but I don't. It is kind of a funny name. They called them Rupert's. Rupert's. So if you know anyone named Rupert, feel free to throw them out of an airplane. Do not throw people named Rupert out of an airplane. David, you're our legal department as well, aren't you? <laughs> All right, final question for you here, David. The Allies actually failed to achieve any of their objectives on June 6th, and only Juno and Gold were linked in the first day. When were all five beaches finally linked? Ah, that's a good question. I would estimate about the 8th perhaps it was actually june 12th a full six days later thanks for playing along david always enjoy these neil and thanks for listening to our d-day 75th anniversary special the tide has turned the free men of the world are marching together to victory i have full confidence in your courage devotion to duty and skill in battle We will accept nothing less than full victory.